All right, welcome to the uh, CNS Journal podcast. This is the February edition, uh, 2023. Uh, my name is uh, Rafael Vega. I'm currently at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center as the director of the Brain Tumor Center here. And I'm very happy to present uh, Dr. Paul Gardner, who is our guest speaker, as well as our faculty guest, uh, Dr. Gab Zada, and our CNS um, podcast fellow, Hayden Hoffman from SUNY Upstate. So uh, we'll go ahead and get into the topic. It's going to be the evolution of endoscopic endonasal approach for olfactory groove meningiomas. Um, and uh, by all means, uh, Dr. Gardner, please uh, introduce yourself to the group. Thank you, it's Paul Gardner. I'm the uh, uh, co-director, neurosurgical director of skull base surgery at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, um, and uh, also uh, vice chair of uh, neurosurgery for surgical services. Um, and um, uh, you know, we obviously have very much pushed uh, endoscopic endonasal boundaries, and I think that's part of the um, part of what this manuscript was about: is trying to study and understand our own outcomes. Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, again, we have Gab Zada from uh, USC. Would you like to introduce yourself for the group? Sure. Hi, everyone. Gab Zada from uh, University of Southern California in Los Angeles. I'm the uh, surgical director of our Brain Tumor Center, and I also uh, co-direct the Skull Bay Surgery uh, Center here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. And then, of course, uh, Hayden Hoffman, please. Uh, would you introduce yourself, too? Yes, thank you. My name is Hayden. I'm a neurosurgery resident at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse. All right, thank you. So uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, uh, Paul, would you like to kind of just discuss the paper a little bit more and uh, talk a little bit about the results and uh, we'll, we'll start and in getting into it? Uh, absolutely. So uh, this is a, um, there's a lot of controversy, probably one of the most controversial topics with NNA surgery is these uh, olfactory groove meningiomas. Um, and most of the literature out there, you know, for comparing endonasal surgery is, is relatively older series, and it's probably been the one area that hasn't really caught on. So I wanted to take a, a look at our own modern series just to see, you know, where we stand. And so this was 75 uh, different patients that were uh, looked at over a relatively long period of time. Um, and we sort of looked at them in three different quartiles. So this was between uh, January 2003 and June of 2020. Um, so more than one uh, surgeon, but at one institution with a very similar technique. Um, and we just wanted to look at the outcomes and see if they changed over time. Uh, did we get better at this? Was this something that we learned about? And if so, how and what did we learn? And so this was uh, 75 tumors conveniently. And we um, turns out when we broke them um, into uh, thirds by time, and actually, we were doing about 25 tumors each of these time periods. So every uh, so not a very common approach that we would use, um, and certainly not the only approach we use for olfactory group meningiomas, but uh, largely, at least my philosophy, is to try to approach them this way. And when looking at this, we're able to get uh, not just a, quote, gross total resection, but a Simpson grade one resection of olfactory group meningioma 64% uh, of the time, so almost two-thirds of the time. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, one of the big um, uh, negatives of uh, endonasal surgery for these tumors is the guaranteed loss of olfaction, unless it's, you know, these rare unilateral tumors where you have a chance. Um, whereas craniotomy gives you some chance of saving olfaction, although probably most series show that's well under 50%. But in, in our series, um, the only, only about 25% of patients actually had intact olfaction. 
uh, almost over 50%, it was completely absent, and another, uh, the rest, it was altered or, or significantly diminished. And so, uh, you know, this sort of, I think, is important for that particular discussion, although uh, that remains an important part of it. Now, um, like I said, these three tiers were six years each, and 25 patients fell into each one of those six years, which kind of makes for a convenient comparison. Um, and we did uh, could see actual markers of change in our surgical technique. Um, for example, when we look at the contemporary group, this last third, uh, they really were there was no staging in that contemporary group. Whereas early on in our experience, we staged quite frequently, and this perhaps was due to um, inexperience or getting better at it or understanding which tumors we could and couldn't remove safely. Uh, we also increasingly used a, a draft three, and what that is, you know, for neurosurgeons, we aren't necessarily familiar with that, but it's a, basically a very wide frontal sinus opening endonasally from below, and that allows you to see the entire frontal sinus connect both sides, and that, that allowed us to have a very good landmark for uh, the frontal or the most anterior part of the tumor, and that's probably why we did it more often. And then finally, perhaps the most significant difference was in reconstruction, where we now use a multilayer reconstruction, which consists of an inlay, an intradural inlay of a collagen matrix like, like Dura matrix, for example, and then an onlay of a fascia lata, a large piece of fascia lata that's then laid onto the graft, uh, laid onto the epidural space, tucked in the epidural space, and then finally a vascularized nasal septal flap that's placed on top of that. Of course, the nasal septal flap was not even uh, around for the first uh, a couple of years of this series, but the multi-layer reconstruction is probably the biggest difference that, uh, that uh, led to a decrease then in spinal fluid leak rate, which dropped down to about 8% in most recent years and was really uh, quite high in early years. Um, and that was significant. Um, there was really no change in some important outcomes, things like permanent uh, visual compromise. Uh, we didn't have any cases where that occurred. Um, but perhaps uh, another um, marker of microsurgical technique that we found is that the other thing that was different over time is that the postoperative encephalomalacia or the, the um, uh, brain loss, the frontal lobe, uh, Malaysia that uh, was left after the tumor decreased over time. And remember, these are the same size tumors across time. So the, the tumor size was not appreciably different across these sets. Um, and then also the time that the brain edema uh, resolved was dramatically uh, faster in the contemporary group. So these are markers that perhaps we're getting uh, better at our surgery over time and hopefully having therefore less impact on the frontal lobe. But um, you know, as many of uh, many papers do show and many of our papers show, there's a learning curve with approaching uh, these more complicated uh, skull-based tumors. And I think that's one of the other take-home messages from this paper. Yeah, thank you so much for that overview. And you know, congratulations to you and the rest of your authors for that paper, because uh, I think it's gonna be a nice one for everybody to look at. Um, uh, we can go ahead and start with uh, Gab Zada if you'd like to just uh, go ahead and uh, ask any questions um, and start the conversation. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed reading this paper. Um, uh, and um, for me, the, the main highlights were, number one, that um, UPMC has really uh, pushed the envelope with their vast experience over several decades. And, and so we get to learn from, from their experience. And um, and you know there are a lot of learning curve um, type studies out there, but um, what I really like about this one is um, not only do we see their the improvements you'd expect in things like spinal fluid 
leakage rates, et cetera, but that they really describe how um, their, their technique has evolved and, and also the, um, the, the tumors that they've gone after and the selection of cases has evolved. And that's, I think, for me, what I really enjoyed um, reading so much. And I, um, uh, I got to visit uh, Pittsburgh last month uh, for a skull-based course and, and, and watch Dr. Gardner perform a live surgery on olfactory group meningioma and see um, exactly how amazing they are at performing these um, approaches. And I, I, and for one, I mean, not only did I learn a lot, but um, I really commend them on, on their dedication, number one, to reducing frontal lobe edema. And I think that concept is absolutely critical. And number two, their dedication to a Simpson grade one resection with bony involvement. And so I think, um, you know, we're really benefactors of that, but um, I want to pose a couple questions to Dr. Gardner based on the series. Um, and, and the first question would be, um, uh, you've done such a good job describing um, the techniques and some of the outcomes, et cetera, but how, how do you think overall case selection has evolved at UPMC over the same time period? And as you know, Paul, um, I still do a fair amount of craniotomies for uh, anterior skull-based meningiomas. I really like uh, superorbital keyhole approaches and, and occasionally lateral terional or OZ approaches, rarely a bifrontal these days, unless it's really a giant uh, tumor with lateral extension, but um, maybe you can talk about how how that whole practice pattern has evolved at UPMC. Sure, I mean one of the you know things that we always try to do with this data is to to learn from it, and we uh, published a paper uh, not too long ago, actually uh, I believe with the same author Pierre Champagne, who was uh, fantastic, spent a year with us, and really did uh, as a superb surgeon, did some great work while he was there. But looking at where we had uh, residual left behind on these tumors. Um, and that and that residual uh, is in very specific areas, and um, and I think we learn somewhat where we do well with removing the tumor and where we don't. And so some of these more spread out kind of sessile tumors that might go over the orbital apex, for example, um, I still might remove those endonasally, but that, that might put, that's uh, pushed me a little bit perhaps to doing an open approach. And what's interesting is that you know there's no size differentiation on these tumors in this case series, but I do think there's probably some bias um, to, uh, you know, if I have a large tumor that's really billowing out, um, there is still probably a bias if it's extending and truly has a dural attachment than maybe to do that through a craniotomy. So there may be a subtle bias there. Um, in addition, um, you know, obviously average tumor size depends on small versus large tumor. So I think we've gotten a little more selective um, in our cases, but um, as you see, based on the number done over that time period, I don't think there's a huge difference in, in the cases that we're choosing to do endonasia. I think the concept still remains. Um, you know, I, I think we've learned uh, how to do some of those more challenging cases better. I, I will freely admit that there are probably a, a hand, a, you know, two or three cases in that first part uh, where we maybe now would do it through a craniotomy. But in general, I don't think there's a huge differentiation there. Yeah, that uh, that says a lot. And I think um, a, a couple of things I took away, um, it's, it seemed like you were able to chase a, more tumors over time that extended more laterally over the orbit. And and one thing I really picked up from you, Paul, is how you uh, focus on taking off the lamina papyrusia and, and really the, la the, the lateral components of the anterior skull base. And that gets you over to the midline of the orbit. I and mean, I thought that was a really uh, um, nice technique that you guys have, have, have worked on there. Yeah, I think probably one of the other things, and this is important to say that you, uh, I think, probably saw 
is, is that these are painfully difficult surgeries. Um, you know, this is, this is a challenging surgery. Um, and so, um, you know, that's not a, um, I think that's part of where the learning curve is reflected in this and part of why this hasn't really picked up. Um, you know, you really do have to sort of torture yourself a bit to make it through these cases. I, I apologize too, I, I, mis, I misquoted, it was Pierre Champagne who did this uh, most recent paper, but um, uh, one of our former fellows, Dr. Seti, who uh, now I believe is still uh, in, in Detroit actually, um, uh, wrote this initial, the paper on looking at where we have recurrence and where we have residual, which was for me, very important learning. Yeah. And you've, you've, uh, segued uh, beautifully into my next question, because, um, for me, some of the pain points around this, this procedure are the, um, the sinonasal issues and the reconstruction. And especially when you have a really large, um, uh, olfactory groove meningioma, um, et cetera. And so I also noticed in this paper um, that there, there was more and more maybe reliance on lumbar drainage. And, and some of that uh, may have been borne out by your level one um, randomized control trial that came out of UPMC. So do you have any comments about some of those trends as well? Sure. I mean, I think that was a you know significant learning point for us. There's a lot of controversy about, you know, do you use lumbar drains? Do you not? And the truth is for pituitary tumors, you don't need them. And interestingly enough, so we did a randomized control trial that we had to stop early because it met criteria which were dramatic for leak, um, especially with larger anterior fossa and posterior fossa. Interestingly, it was not significant for the supracellar tumors like the craniopharyngiomas and tuberculum meningiomas, which is actually what a lot of the literature is based on. So it's actually consistent with that literature, which shows that you know lumbar drains, a lot of people aren't using them and having success. But when you move to these more anterior defects, the CSF leak rates are dramatically different um, without a lumbar drain. You're talking about four or five times more. So this is really a, an area where a lumbar drain is critical and, uh, and did play an important role um, for us over time in decreasing that leak rate. But I also think the multi-layer reconstruction where we didn't rely just on a nasal septal flap um, also was a, a pretty important part. And that's something you know we learned from um, other surgeons you know, uh, um, so watching what other surgeons do and have success with is always an important thing to learn and never think that, you know, your technique is, is the best and the only way, especially if it's something that you're, you're really not having ideal results with. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. You know, uh, one thing I wanted to ask uh, from our end is, you know, we actually had a grand rounds about this two weeks ago and we were discussing you know, this approach and what are some of the limitations that prevent people from moving uh, towards just like you mentioned in the paper. And, and one of those was, I guess, from a technical standpoint, you know, when you're doing the resection, you know, I know it's not really commented too much in the paper, but what about, you know, manipulation of the blood vessels or any kind of injury? Or what about like, how do you handle the bleeding uh, when you're trying to really remove um, or cut off that blood supply, you know? Yeah, great question. I mean, the, the first point about, uh, you know, vascular dissection is absolutely critical. And, and this is sort of a, a mantra of, uh, about um, uh, the learning curve. It's a learning curve mantra is that we really have to um, respect your own learning curve and vascular endoscopic microsurgical dissection of vasculature is probably at the far end of that learning curve. Um, and you have to be, um, you know, willing and able to go through that learning curve. So if you have a tumor that doesn't encase the blood vessels, in fact, doesn't even touch them, that's pretty straightforward. Worst case scenario, you 
violate the PIA, for example. But if you have a tumor that's at least adherent or in contact with those vessels, now you do have to be comfortable to be able to dissect them off and sometimes they'll come right off without problem. If the tumor is really um, radiographically encased, um, you know, I think a lot of people are more comfortable doing that through an open approach, and that's a relative contraindication to this approach. Um, but the truth is that with experience, you can get just as facile at doing this endonasally, but that's at the end of the learning curve. And I think it's a very, very important part of this. And for many people, having that as a limitation of the approach is appropriate. And, and I think it really needs to be a point of discussion in, in, with any patient. You know, you have to do what you're comfortable with and what you think you can apply best. Um, and then the other um, uh, point about the bleeding at the base of the skull, this is, you know, both of these parts really take team surgery. So, you know, you can't have um, a sinus surgeon just do the whole exposure and remove the bone and everything. You really have to know the anatomy. You've got to be able to selectively coagulate the ethmoidal arteries very early on, perhaps by opening the lamina papricia and identifying it, you know, where exits the periorbita. Coagulate the whole surface, understand what the blood supply that this is, understand that the other blood supply is from the false, the false itself. And you, you wanna to try to quite, you know, understand where those vessels will be coming from. Um, but you can't do either that, nor can you do uh, intracranial vascular dissection without a team with, uh, of a, doing dynamic endoscopy and working with two-handed surgery. It's, it's really critical. And that teamwork aspect often gets underappreciated and truthfully, if I went, you know, one of the big limitations, if I went to another hospital with a new ENT, I'd have to go through a learning curve again. I couldn't just go somewhere and do this with anyone. Uh, and so that need for uh, true team surgery is a, a limitation. Thank you so much. Uh, Hayden, by all means, please uh, join us. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Gardner, one of the reasons I really enjoyed this paper is the the number of outcomes you covered, everything from um, you know, obviously CSF leak to uh, time to resolution of edema, cognitive status. Um, I think that was really well done. Uh, one of the things I noticed um, is that a lot of these patients presented with visual impairment, and I was just wondering um, how the uh, how that improved and if there were any trends over your experience in terms of the number of patients um, whose vision improved after surgery. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good question. And I think something that um, we maybe lose track of sometimes with olfactory group meningiomas. There are two ways that olfactory meningiomas can cause vision loss. The most obvious and common is that they, if they just spill backwards like a plane of meningioma and sit on top of the optic nerves, compressing them. And so you're much more likely to get just a loss of visual acuity than a bitemporal hemianopsia because they're not really necessarily on the chiasm. In fact, the chiasm is the last thing they're going to contact. Secondarily, they can also cause severe papilledema. You know, we have the, uh, the classic pattern with uh, papilledema in one eye and atrophy in the other, the Foster-Kennedy syndrome, um, but they can often just cause straight up papilledema and so um, from the edema that exists there. So both of those are potential, although I, would, I believe that primary compression is far more common. Um, I think this is a potential advantage of this approach um, and with that, we didn't have any cases of visual compromise and our visual outcomes stayed steady throughout. Um, so I think that our, our natural ability and focus on decompressing the optics uh, and not having to manipulate them through this approach held true. Now, in all fairness, I think that probably, you know, craniotomy provides very good access to this as well because of the pattern of, of invasion. Um, but I do think we were able to get to the optics very early 
decompress the medial optic nerve along its entire length very early um, and open the optic canals early. Those are perhaps the, one of the few advantages of this approach. One of my other questions was about, uh, you had mentioned that during earlier in your experience, you were staging more of the surgeries. And I was just wondering, are the, were those uh, ones where you were going back and doing a transcranial approach um, for some of the more lateral extending tumor or a second stage endoscopic approach? Um, what were the early yeah, reasons for, for staging? Yeah. Very good question. You know, it's a really, um, really astute observation because that's an important marker in this case series. And the short answer is typically these are stage two staged endonasal. Certainly doing an initial debulking and then doing a craniotomy for you know, a very large tumor has a potential advantage of allowing frontal lobe edema to calm down. But what we found also is that a lot of times from these large tumors, when you debulk them, they often billow out away from the olfactory sulcus on either side, and they don't actually have a dural attachment but rather just billowing out when they collapse in, you realize the dural attachment's more narrow. Um, that said, uh, the staging here was largely endonasal after endonasal, so two stages. And, uh, and that's a really good uh, example or marker of the learning curve. You know, when you first start doing, or even out to this day, for example, if I do a giant acoustic uh, neuroma, I might stage it or, you know, a, a huge petroclival tumor. The truth is, um, there, are all, there are multiple studies that show as soon as a patient's surgery goes more than 12 hours, they have worse outcomes. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of, you know, it can be the length of anesthesia and impact on the patient, risk of DVT. But the truth is, we're all human. You can only function at a high level for a certain period of time until you start to lose your patience, you start to lose your ability. And that's when you have complications and you don't want the most complicated part of the case, which is usually um, the brain dissection to be at, uh, you know, what, 10 o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night even. So staging it allows you to break what might be a 12 to 14 hour surgery into maybe an eight and a six hour surgery. And what we would do initially even uh, was, you know, this was before, you know, we had good uh, endoscopic bipolars and before, you know, we learned to use surgifoam and uh, intracranial and non-skull-based surgery. So we might do an initial approach and just achieve hemostasis or coagulate the tumor and then come back you know, the next day. And then we got where we could debulk most of the tumor or remove an entire small tumor. And then it got where we you know, just got better at this because of our technique getting better, uh, better at it because our tools got better and better at it because we understood the anatomy and how to avoid things like blood loss and how to you know, get through certain parts of the tumor better. So it, it really is a marker of the learning curve and our understanding of the tumor and how to remove it. My only other question, um, I, I did notice that the, the length of stay decreased throughout the study period, and that's even with, you know, more use of lumbar drains, uh, harvesting fascia lata, obviously in a separate incision. Um, so how do you think you were able to counteract those um, factors and, and still decrease the length of stay despite those? Yeah, I think that's probably one very simple thing, and that's the quality of our reconstruction. Um, you know, and also over time, you know, any, you also have to be careful when you look at any study over a long period of time to say, well, what practice patterns in a hospital might have changed, for example. And 
fair to say that over 18 years, you're probably going to see a decrease in length of stay of every single tumor, of every single surgery uh, done ever in any hospital in the U.S. at least. So there's some small part of that, but I think it's CSF leak. I think it's our ability to control CSF leak. And, you know, for example, if we got early leaks in some of these patients or we staged them, that's a, that automatically doubles your uh, length of stay. And so I think it's, it's that same learning curve with how to do these and how to effectively get patients through that hospitalization. And, and look, that's a, a, you know, a great uh, point about lumbar drainage because although yes, lumbar drainage increases your length of stay because it decreases all these other problems mainly related to CSF leak and meningitis, overall, the patient may have a much shorter overall length of stay and certainly you know, lower 60 day length of stay. Yeah, and I, I thought it was particularly impressive, you know, the, the average age increased over the course of the study period too, and, and you were still really able to maintain those outcomes. So um, thank you. Yeah, wonderful. You know, thank you so much. Uh, and, and I think uh, on that note, we'll uh, end this uh, podcast, but I just want to take the time to thank everybody for uh, carving out a little space to uh, have this discussion. So appreciate your time, Dr. Gardner and Dr. Zada, and of course, uh, Hayden, uh, everybody uh, appreciate it. And uh, on closing, you know, we want to mention to all of our listeners on the CNS that uh, this is a CME activity. It's complimentary for all CNS members and worth 1.5 CME. And uh, the podcast is available in our online catalog at cns.org. Uh, so thank you again.